So we've been in a, a series called Paradox, and, and really it's um, taking that word to explain the paradox of faith, because faith, when we really begin to understand it, it's, it's paradoxical. Let me read what Soren Kierkegaard says. Kierkegaard says, it is, the duty, it is the duty of the human understanding to understand that there are things which it cannot understand, and what those things are. Human understanding has vulgarly occupied itself with nothing but understanding. But if it would only take the trouble to understand itself at the same time, it would simply have to posit the paradox. And you're like, what the heck did that mean? And that's the point. It's confusing, right? Um, The point is the paradox of human understanding and faith, that the things that we hold to create mysteries and riddles and paradoxes and so when we started the series we talked about Joshua moving into the promised land yet the element of having to wait and to follow and to submit at the same time we talked about Abraham about receiving the promised child Isaac and yet being called to turn around and then try to sacrifice or give back to God in a way that would be beyond human comprehension. How would this look? How would this be? I don't understand this. Yet having the faith to believe that he can submit to God and surrender, yet somehow God is is big enough to, if need be, resurrect from the dead the promised child who through um, him, all of these nations are supposed to be blessed. And this paradox of faith, of resigning himself to obedience, yet at the same moment having the full faith to believe that God can do the miraculous and the paradox that's in there. And then we talked about the power of faith and, and does faith really move mountains and what really happens with this whole thing, how we're supposed to live the riddle or as Henry Nouwen said, learning to live the question yet believe in miracles. Uh, miracles are an interesting thing. We're embedded, I think. I mean, embedded with this notion that there really are such things as miracles. But then we never see them. Why? Because if we saw them all the time, they wouldn't be called miracles, right? I mean, I mean, we, you see what I'm saying? I mean, we're aware that they exist, but we, we're not going to see them all the time because then they wouldn't be miracles. Yet we have that sense that they are happening, that they do happen, that we're subtly seeing miracles being worked out in our life or, or the lives of friends, and, and we can almost touch that. My daughter, my oldest daughter, loves reading um, I was going to say dragon stories, but I'll just say fairy tales. It's maybe safer. Um, my, my oldest daughter loves reading dragon tales, and I love history. Absolutely love history. I mean, I was born loving history. Uh, actually, uh, that's not true. My fourth grade teacher, I can pinpoint it, um, made me love history. The fourth grade teacher was one of those teachers you remember for your life. It was a guy, and I was in Maine, and he told the story of history in a way that just came alive. And I remember beginning to love history in fourth grade. And so I'm, I, I love history. And so I was trying to explain to my daughter why I love history because it's hard for someone that's younger to understand because they, you don't have all the handles for history. You don't know enough of the story, really, for little things to make sense because there's no hook. And so I was trying to help her understand why I love history. And I said, do you know why you love fairy tale? You love it because it's, there's a mystique about it. It's otherworldly, 
but it's almost as if you can touch it. And she said, yeah, no, I get that. I get that. So I read the stories, and it's not really there. It's otherworldly. There's a mystique. But when I'm reading it, I actually kind of, you know, as C.S. Lewis, I mean, that's why C.S. Lewis loved fantasy. He felt like, in some sense, it was more true than the Enlightenment writings, you know, the the overly true stories of his generation. And, and my daughter was like, yeah, I get that. And I said, Mary Joy, that's the way your dad loves history. There's something about history and the stories of, of Romans or, or the Middle Ages or the Reformation or uh, the Renaissance that, that's otherworldly. It's different. It's outside the boundary of what's now. It's kind of out of reach. And there's a mystique about it. There's a quality about it. But you can almost touch it when you are, are studying history and, and it almost feels like it's right there and, and she's like, ah, oh, and she, she got it. And I think when we talk about faith, when we talk about the power of faith, we kind of are all aware that there's this, this mystique and this, this, this mystery and this miraculous nature of it and that somehow there's a truth embedded in it and it's right there maybe just out of reach and there's a quality and when we really talk about it enough we begin to realize there's something true about it and we can almost reach it and we're not supposed to let go of it or retreat back to overly specific enlightenment things. We're supposed to press into it because there is something more true about that story than the other stories. Does that make sense? Um, if you guys don't like dragon stories or history, you're probably like, no, it doesn't make sense. I don't know what you're talking about. That's okay. Um, so this week, I want to talk, I want to kind of close this series with talking about the paradox of fear. The paradox of fear. And what do I mean by that? I, I don't always start a sermon this way, but I want to start this week this way by giving you the problem statement. The problem statement. Here's the problem statement. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, this is what he says. He gets to the sixth hour. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. I'm sorry. And then about the ninth hour, right at the end, this is in chapter 27, verse 46 of Matthew. And then about the ninth hour, Jesus, he cries out in a loud voice, and if you can hear it almost, an anguished voice. And so, I mean, darkness coming over, I mean, Matthew is telling the story the way it happened. It's, it's almost like the, the, the weather in Bend, you can get a sunny day, and then the way the clouds can just come in so fast. And then all of a sudden, the temperature drops by 10 degrees, and it gets gray, and it's ominous. I mean, that's what Matthew's describing here. And then you get this loud, anguished cry of Jesus, and Jesus says this, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my, and I'm reading this. I don't know the language. I'm just reading what it says. So if you're not following along, I'm not trying to play. I mean, it says both here. It's one of the times where it gives you... Um, the foreign language and the translation in the text. I'm not trying to be smart on you. Um, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here's the problem. I often read that and often thought about that. 
uh, in a way that we, I think, often think about our faith but don't readily share. Meaning, um, those words created a lot of doubt in me for the veracity of the Christian faith. Because you've got the guy here, the guy, the guy that knew God the most. And at the very end, um, God's not there or he can't find God or he doesn't sense God or he doesn't maybe believe in God is the way I used to read it. And, and, it, and I used to think, man, if, if that's how he ended, there's not much hope for me. That in the 11th hour, I'm going to be able to reach out and, and touch God or find God or have a peace from God. And I kind of began to go, man, you know, did, did Jesus lose his faith right at the end? Did Jesus kind of... Yeah. And so if he did, if, if, if right at the end there, there's no kind of God that he's able to touch or grab or hear from, um, that, that's concerning to me. Like, so what am I supposed to make of this Christian faith when the guy that's the guy at the end is struggling with his ability to sense or, or feel that there's a God that's personal and close and right there. There's a lot of people that try to do this with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis lost his wife towards the end of his life and he wrote this book under a pseudonym and it was about his grief. It was a journal and then it gets published and it was uh, raw. It is raw if you read it. A grief observed. And it talks about his struggles with faith and believing in God and how he's trying to work through this. And so if you kind of just jump into some of the raw things, you can walk away going, my gosh, um, Lewis. Lewis was struggling with his faith. Man, that's the guy. That's the dude. He's the one. I looked up to him and he's talking about his faith being like a house of cards and that he built it up over all this time and then in just one moment the whole thing crashed. And is that what's going on with Jesus here? When he gets to the cross, did it just come apart? So that's um, at times how I used to read that passage. And so it's like, what's going on here? Why is that there? And, and so that's the problem statement. That's the problem statement. Now I want to address that way of reading that and the fears that would come with it. If I read that passage that way, I'm reading it wrong. I'm reading it wrong. If you turn a little bit earlier, Matthew 26, I want to kind of give context to what's going on here. The evangelist Matthew puts, and put your finger in Matthew 26, and I'll bounce back to Psalm 22 real fast, but the evangelist puts this verse here not to challenge our faith. He's the evangelist Matthew. 
He's telling the story of Jesus, of the one whom he believes has died and risen again, was the Son of God. There's nothing about this phrase to him that makes it all of a sudden cheap or hollow as if it's not true or as if Jesus somehow lost his faith or something like that. He's putting it here to serve a purpose and say, look at how Jesus was fulfilling the call of the Messiah. Jesus was the one sent from God. Look at how he is living out and did live out the calling and the prophecies of the Messiah. Psalm 22 says this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so In his last words, Jesus wasn't uttering a doubt in God or uttering that God somehow might not exist and he was struggling with the existence of God. In Jesus' last words, he was uttering in fulfillment of the prophecies of Psalm. And if you begin to correlate Jesus' words and teachings with the Proverbs and the Psalms and the prophets, you see over and over again that Jesus just slips the, the Old Testament into his teaching at almost every step to show everyone this is what was foretold. This is what God always talked about. This is what God was alluding to, that I was going to take on humanity and the problem of humanity and the riddle of humanity in sin and that I was going to bear that as the Messiah. Then I was going to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And so in Jesus' last words, when he knew that these were going to be his last words, he utters the human condition and the full weight of what he's experienced experiencing at that moment, which is the wrath of God. What do I mean by that? Listen to this phrase of the cup in Isaiah, Isaiah 51, the cup of God's wrath. See, I have taken out of your hand, says the sovereign Lord, the cup that made you stagger, and from that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And it goes on in a couple other places. And the cup, the idea of the cup is the wrath of God. Jesus is living up into his calling as the Messiah. He's crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at this moment he is drinking the cup for which God had prepared for him that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, chapter 26 of Matthew, that God would take from him. Jesus asked his disciples, verse 36, to go and pray for him while he removed himself to pray to God. And then in verse 38 he said um, to them, my soul is overwhelmed to sorrow to the point of death. And when he prays, he says, my father, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. He says, could you men not keep watch with me for even one hour? Do you not understand the calling that I'm about to have to live up into to take the sin of the world and the wrath of God upon me? 
I'm afraid of it. I mean, I've got sorrow and grief and emotion. And I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm beginning to experience the full weight of this. And I'm gonna, at the last moment, experience the fullest measure of this. The absence of the presence and the light of God and the full wrath of God as I'm drinking of this cup and giving my life on the cross. I'm beginning to live up into this calling And he says, you guys couldn't even spend an hour to pray. And he says to them, watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now he goes away for a second time and he says, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, then may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more the third time saying the same thing. What was the same thing? This cup that you've called me to as the Messiah, you've sent me down, wrapped me in humanity to take the sin of the world, all of the problem of humanity onto myself, to drink of that goblet of your wrath, the punishment of the sins of the world, to die for the sins of the world so that the unjust could be considered just, so that I could justify them through this kind of vicarious atonement, this death. And he says, this... This is, I am human. And this is freaking me out. And if you can do this some other way, and I can just skirt past this next 36 hours, do it. But if not, then your will be done, Lord. Your will be done. So what is happening here? I... um, I began to realize years ago that I, uh, I had a simple idea of faith that faith was to take away and replace fear. That, that faith, the more faith you had, you would be able to fight fear or the purpose of that faith was to, to help you skirt around fear an emotion. Does that make sense? It seems, seems logical, right? What I began to realize when Matthew puts these words of Jesus in here at the end when he's on the cross and he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you begin to look back and, and see this idea of him drinking of the cup. That I began to realize this notion of Christian responsibility. That when we are living in faith... When we are following in faith, we then are also accepting like Jesus did, God's will for our life, God's calling for our life, and we're accepting what I would call Christian responsibility. And that when we're living in faith and we accept Christian responsibility to follow where we're supposed to follow, it does not always lead us away from fear and emotion or around fear and emotion, but the very will of God often leads us, as we're following in faith, directly into fear and emotion. And when I realized that, it changed how I conceived of the Christian life. Because if I'm living like Jesus then God's will for my life might be that I would end up in a garden one night praying 
feeling the full weight of God's will for my life and praying that he would take that cup from me. If you turn to Mark, we're going to spend a little bit of time there. Mark chapter 10. There is a very human way of following Jesus. And that story would, would go that you mess up your life when you're not following Jesus. Most of us do. I did. And you begin to realize, I'm not doing so good at this. Maybe there's a better way to, to size this thing up. And you see Jesus and the promise of salvation. You begin to just immediately think, that's a better strategy for life. Like, I'll replace this strategy with that strategy. And you turn into following Jesus but what you haven't really replaced is your notion of the end game. Meaning, when you were kind of running your own life, you were really after glory and after success and after pleasure. And you kind of uh, weren't doing a good job. And you, you kind of think, maybe this is the way to really get it right. But subtly, underneath it all, you're still after success or glory or pleasure, just thinking that it's going to come via Christ. Um, this happens with Jesus' disciples, so we're not alone in this. I remember one time in prayer, uh, I had this picture of, I mean, it was one of those moments where you just stop dead in your tracks. I, ha I was praying very passionately. I'd been praying for a long time, and all of a sudden it, I had this picture, and it was as if Jesus opened the door to the room, and I was playing this video game, and, and, I mean, it was like, right then I knew exactly what this kind of picture meant. And, and what Jesus was, what I think God was showing me is that I had popped out the game. Um, you guys remember the cartridges? Because that's the way the picture was. It wasn't like a disc. It was like slapping in a cartridge with a bunch of pins, right? But I think what, what God was trying to show me in that moment was like, look, you, you were playing a game. You got to Christianity. You you pulled that game out, plopped in another game, but you were still trying to win at the game. Put the joystick down and follow me out of the room. Christianity is not a game that you're supposed to win at. Put the joystick down. I mean, it's, it's one of those moments like, and so you have this moment happening here, Matthew 10, or Mark 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay, you know, I mean, if we just, sometimes, you know, in life you learn that you don't really get anything unless you ask for it. And so, you know, us extroverts, we kind of begin to learn early on in life. You know, like, what's the worst that could happen? You know, someone says, no, let's just ask for more things. Right? Um, I'm, I'm like that. You know, you kind of, you know, this is so, I think I would have been one of these guys. Hey, Jesus. Well, you know, I mean, if no one else is going to ask, can I, you know, I figure maybe I'll ask. Um, and it doesn't feel that awkward because I got my brother here with me. He's asking for the same thing. But um, can one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory? It's like my kids sitting in the front seat because of the whole airbag thing. Like, it's like they wait their whole life to sit in the front seat. Um, 
And it's this huge, big thing. My, daughter just turned, my third daughter just turned eight today, and she was able to sit in the front seat with the airbag off. Um, and she was, like, playing with the window. I'm like, the back windows do the same thing. It's no difference, you know. But she thinks, like, it's the front seat, man. It's, it's glory. Um, but there's something about where you're sitting and the proximity and all that other stuff. And these dudes are like, hey, left and right, what do you think? Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And he says to them, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Sure. <laughs> sure, that's, yeah. I mean, you're the dude. We can do whatever the dude does. We want to do whatever the dude does. We want to be like you. I mean, they, uh, sure, we can. And Jesus says, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. I'm not calling the shots here. I'm submitting to God. There's something fascinating about Jesus. Jesus said, I do only what the Father gives me to do. I say what, what the Father gives me to say. I'm not going to speak into who sits here and there. God's got that kind of sized up and it's his plan. The more we mature into Christian maturity, the more of our freedom or autonomy we voluntarily give away. Do you guys know that? We, we are never more free than when we have given our freedom away. We are never more free than when we are fully submissive to God's will in every aspect of our life and find our greatest joy there. Our freedom comes in giving our autonomy away and submitting up underneath God like Christ did with God. And he says, look, these are not for me to give away. And then when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Why? Again, very human. Um, dang it. <laughs> Those sneaky, extroverted, like, they got to Jesus first. It's not fair. Like, they asked the teacher first if they could be the one on recess to do whatever. Man, they were the ones that, like, they, they should have, they, they, they jumped the gun. It wasn't right for them to do that. They should have waited. Why? Because then maybe I could have done it first. You know what I mean? Like this is so very youth group-ish. Do, you know, do you know that Jesus, Jesus was the first um, youth pastor? I mean that literally. Um, arguably, his disciples were teenagers. The oldest, probably Peter, who was married, maybe 16, 17 18. Also one of the reasons why Peter was probably the most assertive. But these, these were boys that had come out from underneath their fathers, but were still working with their fathers, arguably 13, 14, 15, 16. Some of them maybe a bit older. Jesus was, uh, by some accounts, the first youth pastor. And so these younger dudes are like, um, James and John, like, you jerks, we're mad at you. And then what does Jesus say back to this as this, like, drama is unfolding? Jesus responds here. He says, listen, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. The leaders that you see on a regular basis have a, a very strong authoritarian structure. That's what power and leadership and honor and glory and progress and playing the game and climbing the ladder amounts to is a very strong hierarchical authority structure. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, if you're after glory, if you're after success, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Watch this. This is... This is how it comes back. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Want to know what my cup is? I'll tip you off to it right now. I have all the authority. I have all the power. I have all the glory that I could or would ever want to claim. And what I'm doing with that is I'm laying it down to serve others. Because you know what? Others need to be served because they're a flock and they're sheep and they're God's flock and they're God's sheep and they need shepherds that are willing to serve and to give and to lay down their lives. They need leaders who are going to lead through example, not through structure. And so that's what I've come is to give my life as a ransom to sacrifice to the full measure. You want glory? That's where you're going to find it. You want to be next to me? Can you drink my cup? Oh, you can? Well, maybe you're a bit cavalier, but guess what? Regardless of that, you are going to drink from my cup. My calling as the Messiah and what God has planned for me, his will for me, is going to be lived out through you and the church. I am the incarnation of God wrapping myself in humanity for humanity. Guess what? When I leave, the church is going to be the incarnation, the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Wrapping yourself in humanity for humanity. Ultimately following what God would call you to do. Laying down whatever you could claim. Glory or power or pleasure. So that you could serve and give your life for others. That's unbelievable. So Jesus at the end proves or, or acts out or lives out or spells out his calling as the Messiah, quoting the psalmist in this prayer. The bookend to the prayer he prayed the night before where he was saying, God, this cup of your wrath and this calling that I've got, if you could take it from me. And then his disciples, when we understand Christian responsibility, what it means to live up underneath it, we realize that faith, far from taking us away from emotion or fear and just being a better game to play, often, when we're living it out in the full measure, takes us right into the vortex of emotion. Can take us right into the vortex of emotion and fear. Uh, I was talking to a friend over dinner um, the other night about Marcel. You guys know Marcel. Marcel's been here before, our friend that's a pastor in the Congo. Marcel um, was sitting at my dinner table uh, one time late into the evening. There was a bunch of us talking to him, and he was talking about when it was at the worst 
of the conflicts in Congo, uh, you didn't go into the villages. The villages out in the bush were unsafe. It's where the rebels would control or where they would hijack you along the road um, in your car. If you were driving, you would drive ridiculously fast along back um, jungle roads. Why? Because your only chance in the middle of nowhere if someone's trying to hijack you is to be going fast enough to just keep going. Um, and so he was talking about this. So he worked, works food security for World Relief. So how do you get food to people whose houses have been decimated, their, their seed crop for the following years, their tools? And, um, and he was talking about in the worst of this when he would go out way out into the bush, the jungle, uh, and try and find these villagers and try and help them. And uh, he would go from village to village, and he would ask the pastors in that village, hey, I need to go to the next village two hours up. Will you go with me? And they'd be like, no. No. <laughs> not not going to go with you. And then he would get up the next morning, and he would go to the next village. And before he would do this, his family would get together, and he said, um, while I was gone, uh, my, my family would, um, uh, how did he say it? would escape from eating fast. Uh, and, and we, before we would finish praying that night, my family would give me away to God. And you can just picture the posture, right? The idea is uh, dad might not be coming home. Eight children, I think, two of them adopted, if I'm getting it right. Um, my family would give me away. Marcel once was offered a job by uh, another uh, non-governmental organization that had come into Congo and realized the respect he had in that area. And they offered him a, a bigger job with a lot more money. And he was telling me the story. And you want to hear his response? Because when he said that, I was like, wow, it's a fancy offer. Like, dang, I'd you, know, you know what I mean? Like, I'm so American. I would have taken that. Like, Marcel's response to these guys as they took him over to dinner and kind of laid this on him was he looked at them and he said, all these years, God has kept me safe as I have worked for world relief going into the bush. While other organizations, people I know, have been kidnapped or hurt or, uh, or held up by bandits, etc. All these years, God has kept me safe. Why would I leave the place that God has called me to? Man, unbelievable understanding of, of contentment and calling in place. But I was remembering the story we were talking the other night with somebody and was sharing this. God's will for Marcel, as he submits and gives away his autonomy and freedom, often leads him into the vortex of emotion and fear. God, if you could take this cup from me, if you could care for, for my Congolese brothers and sisters some other way, but if not, then your will be done. Live it out in my life. So what does that, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Do we try and get away from the cup? Jesus says this in John Right after he prayed, I mean, I want you to turn there because I want you to mark it in your Bible and go back and look at it. But 
we see in Matthew that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying that God would take the cup from him, right? And then he comes back, they're sleeping, and he says, you know what, the time is here, here comes my betrayer. And then we flip to John, and we're looking at the, first, uh, the same story. Um, and uh, in John 18, verse 11, right after Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. I love the little things in the Bible that show you that this is just people writing down an account of what happened. You know what I'm saying? Like the little, oh, by the way, it was this dude. You know what I mean? Like you can go find him. You know, he has relatives. Like go ask about his ear. Uh, so Simon Peter takes out the sword. He cuts off the high priest's servant's ear because he's all revved up. He's ready to fight because what's, what's going on here? We're not going to let you take him. And Jesus gently moves in and he commands Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Do you see the sequence going on here? God, if you could do it some other way, take this cup. Here comes the betrayer. And Peter revs up and Jesus says, Peter, Peter, put down your sword, Peter. I will accept God's will for my life. I will live out my calling. Don't stand in the way of what God is doing because my faith walk is going to take me right now into the vortex of emotion and fear. But that is my calling. Shall I not drink this cup that God has prepared for me? Marcel, dude, don't, don't, don't drive up into the bush. Not, not today. Not with the LRA in that area. Like, don't. That's dumb. Shall I not drink the cup? Don't travel to this country. It's too dangerous. It's not about the danger. It's about what God says to you when you're making your decisions for your life. And if God says go, you go. And if God says stay, you stay. And that's true of your vacations it's true of your job. It's true of who you're going to marry. It's true of what you're going to say about the person that you want to talk about and you don't know what tone you should use. You submit it into God and what God says do, you do whatever it requires. You don't go into it and say, I am free to use the tone I want to because that person on good authority I have this, said this about me. That other organization, they played dirty business, so we're going to play dirty business because we're justified. We're free to do this. No, you're not. No, you're not. You can, you can do that, but don't act as if what other people do dictates your next step with authority when if we checked with our authority, the answer would be different. Does that make sense? 
What authority are you appealing to? Your wants, wishes, or desires? What's fair? What's just? What feels good? What someone else would do in that situation? All of those are authority structures that you can appeal to to justify your actions. But as we grow in Christian maturity and we accept Christian responsibility and we're living by faith, there is only one authority that can speak to you what it is you're supposed to do in a situation. And that authority has a different idea than what you were appealing to, to justify your actions. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, shall I not drink from this cup? Would we look at each other and say, um, look, I, I know you want advice. I know you're dealing with a lot of struggles. I know I've got a lot of ideas of what should go on in your life. But at the end of the day here, let's pray. Let's listen to God. Let's seek God. Because at the end of the day, the only end that really matters is us serving and submitting up into God's will for our life. But how do I know what that is? You come back next week and you find out. Thomas Akempis said this, bear the cross cheerfully and it will bear you. You know, our pain can move us away from God or it can move us to God. Jesus shows us the path of the latter. That the calling and the pain and the emotion and the fear that exists within that calling can cause us to lean into God all the more. That's what the Psalms are about. Begin to learn how to pray the Psalms because the Psalms allow you to lean into God in your human experience instead of taking your human experience somewhere else to try and get it resolved. They teach us how to pray. But our pain can move us to God or it can lead us away from God. Do you know, I, I began to realize that um, I seek God more in my fear than I do when I'm not afraid. And oftentimes my stress is the thing that God used to speak, he uses to speak to me the most clearly. There's a difference between stress and worry. And I think, we're the I think we think they're the same thing. Worry is doubting that God can or will take care of you. Stress is the very real human emotion when you're in the vortex of circumstances that are challenging. Do you understand the difference? I can be very stressed even if I um, trust God. I, I can live with a high degree of stress because I don't know the path. And in that unknowing and uncertainty, I lean all the harder into God going, God, show me the way. I am searching. I am searching. Day and night, I am searching. Show me the way. Show me the way. And I can look stressed. I can project the vibe of being stressed. But in all of that, I'm not worried that God will leave me alone or, or cast me out or not deliver me. I'm searching in the human emotion of it all for where God's will is. And sometimes I'm realizing more and more, God speaks to me the clearest when I'm stressed. Why? Because I'm searching the hardest when I'm stressed. Don't worry about tomorrow. But if you're stressed, that's okay. Take it to God. 
Read the Psalms. They'll show you the way. They'll teach you how to pray. Here's the thing. In, in American Christianity, our starting point, I think, often is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We start with the resurrection. We want to start with everything getting better. We want to start with the promise of more life. But the stumbling block of Jesus has always been a stumbling block because it starts with his death. We die to self. We join him in his death and then we experience the resurrection and the life and the fruit of the Spirit that comes. But we want to start with the resurrection. There's something fascinating about communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, one of the great passages on the Lord's Supper, Paul talks about. And there's a couple things. The first thing he says here is, um, I have no praise for you because your meetings do more harm than good. I love that that's in the Bible. Because sometimes, I, I, you know, that's the truth, isn't it? Right? I don't know that Antioch's been meeting for almost seven years. I don't know that every single week we've done more good than harm. You know, truth be told, uh, we're a church, we're a human church, and even the churches that Paul founded often did more harm than good um, because we're human. We keep trying, we keep trying to work it out. Why did they do more harm than good? Because everybody was thinking about themselves. Everybody was coming in about their own agenda, their own needs, their own wants and wishes, doing it their own way. And Paul says there's no unity here because there's no center point here. And so you do more harm than good. And then he goes on and says, so when you eat and you drink, you need to do it rightly. And he says this, um, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he was given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whatever you eat, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. On the cross, when I got the full wrath, I shed my blood. And when you drink of this cup, you're joining me in my death. And you're proclaiming and remembering my death for you, for all humanity. Until the day I come and all things are restored. And so when you come into church, you don't think just about yourself. You think about what God is doing. You come together. There's a center of gravity. And you proclaim my death. That it's not about your freedom and individuality and autonomy. It's about all of us submitting to God's will for our life, joining together in the glory of God with God at the center. And you drink in remembrance of me. You proclaim my death until the day, the hope that we have in our faith of the resurrection, of when I come back and all things are set right, when I reappear. And so the stumbling block has never been the resurrection. It's always been the cross so Christianity starts at the cross. Um, when we understand Christian responsibility, we equip ourselves to exist in the paradox of emotion and fear. I wanted to read these things, three things I wrote down. Your Christianity doesn't guarantee that life will be fair. 
but it empowers you to be just and righteous in an unfair world. Your Christianity doesn't guarantee comfort, but it says that despite your trials, you can find joy and the secret of contentment. Your Christianity doesn't guarantee that life is about you, but that you are valued and loved by the one who gives life. Pastors, it says in Ephesians 4, are supposed to equip the saints. Those are you. Um, you know the word holy in saints in Greek is the same word. One's an adjective, one's a noun. The noun form of hagios is, is saints. Um, the adjective is holy. Those of us who are set apart unto God and considered holy, saints. Pastors are supposed to equip the saints, those who are holy, set apart unto God to drink the cup he would have them drink and do the will he would have them do, those people are supposed to be equipped by the trainers, the pastors. And here's the question I have. What are, what are we equipping the church in America for? If I asked you, what have you been equipped for as you've lived in the church all these years? Three principles to be happier at work. Ways to, to steward your money better. Even, you know, five principles to a healthier marriage. Those are all great things that can still miss the main point. You see, um, Jesus took disciples and he equipped them to serve and to submit and to give their lives away and to shepherd the flock by rejecting the, the goals of structure and hierarchy and power and authority and glory and to ultimately be willing to give their lives with the full measure of sacrifice, the thing we call love, the proper definition of love. That was what Jesus was equipping his disciples to do, to live the will of God in their life. Are we equipping the saints to live the full will of God in our lives? We, we want something deeper and more radical than just five principles to a happier whatever. We all somehow know that we want to find ourselves there just radically in love with God, wanting nothing but God. Why do I not sin? Because it would put me somewhere more distant than God. Create dissonance in my relationship with God. Create separation between me and God. Introduce guilt into how I feel about myself in relation to God. And I don't want that because all I really want is to be found where God would have me. That's what equipping people means. It doesn't mean here's how you be an usher. Or here's how you do. I mean, equipping is about becoming like Christ. And so... Um, Truth be told, I'll be honest with you, I, sometimes I feel like a fraud. I, I, I know one other guy, Rick McKinley, I, we, we, get to, we struggle with being pastors. I've preached a lot in seven years. And that's a whole lot of talk that I'm supposed to live up to. And, and I, I can't grow that fast. I mean, I can't. So sometimes I'm just like, man, I, I, I wish somebody else would do it. This is too big. I feel like a fraud. What we need is bigger than what I can do. I chase people off every Easter at maybe 20 a clip. If Jesus was here and he was doing it right, he would make half the church leave this Sunday. 
I'm not, I'm not as good as Jesus is at preaching the gospel and really calling people to live what this Christian life would, would look like and be. I, I'm, I, I feel like a fraud sometimes. James says it's a heavy weight to preach because you're going to be held ac- accountable for how you preach. So I sweat bullets every Saturday night. You want to know how I do sermon prep? I lose sleep and I sweat bullets because I treat, I treat this as if eternity is hanging in the balance. And that I'm accountable to God in some sense how I walk up into this. So I always start out Saturday morning going, um, how can I find some good jokes for Sunday? Because I, I, I need to make people laugh more than I do. I'm too serious. And then by Sunday night, middle of night, or Saturday night and Sunday morning, like all the jokes are gone. <laughs> They're gone. Because they get weeded out quick when I begin to grapple with the reality and the gravity of, of who we are, where we are, and what's supposed to happen here. My wife um, was, a big part of our marriage was something that happened when we were dating. And there were some people, some legalistic people, that got a hold of Tamara and started saying, you don't want to marry this guy. Um, he's really rough. He's really rough around the edges. And that was like four years after I'd been a Christian. They had no idea like what I was like, right? But they, um, they really were telling Tamara, um, we, don't, we don't think this is what you should do. Like Ken's, Ken's really rough. And so we drove up over the pass one time in uh, Whittier Hills area late at night, and she finally was venturing out her fears and struggles as she's been getting this counsel and, and kind of put it to me. And I had known what was going on, but I had taken this approach that I was going to refuse to defend myself and I was going to let God defend me. Like I was just like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to twist her arm. I'm not going to try and control this. God, this is, I think this is of you. I'm going to let you do it. And that day, my, my best friend grabbed me and he says, Ken, um, yeah, you're done with that. Now you need to talk. Like God would want you to talk to her. You got to talk, right? So that night we went and we had a talk and, just, and this came out. And this is what I said to Tamara. I said, listen, um, I'm a negative two. I'm a negative two. But a year ago, I was a negative 10. You can ask anyone that knows me. They'll vouch. I was a negative 10 last year. This year, I'm a negative two. Next year, I think I'll be a positive five. Here's what I can offer you. I'm teachable. I'm teachable. That's all I've got. It's all I've had for years. When God speaks, when God moves, I try to follow and I will put everything I've got. I'm always all in, even if I don't get it right, and I'm teachable. And so there might be guys out there that are positive positive fives right now, but guess what? Um, Ten years from now, they're still going to be a positive five because they think they are all that they need to be. And um, so all I've got to offer you is that I'm teachable. And so Tamara, I mean, if you talk to her, um, she made a very difficult decision, and she took teachability. She took it. And so when I feel like a fraud, and I'm like, man, I don't know that I want to do this. I don't know that I can keep doing this. Um, That's what she throws back at me, is uh, it's not about you being perfect, can you be teachable, and you trust the people in the church are going to be teachable too. But this is what it would mean if, if I really were able to equip you. 
is that we would all be able to grow up into the maturity and the fullness of living out and being Christ-like, which is so much deeper and more meaningful than I think what we take it to be. We all got to pull, pull the game out, put the joystick down, walk out of the room, and realize it's about following Christ. Discipleship is a noun, it's not a verb. The responsibility is not on Jesus to disciple us initially. It's on us choosing to accept the offer of discipleship in which is all the Christian responsibility that we're supposed to absorb as we join him in the cross. Let me just read this Bonhoeffer quote as we close. Bonhoeffer says this. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. We must not assume that our schedule is our own to manage, but allow it to be arranged by God. My prayer today would just simply be, wherever you're at, however God is wanting to speak into or interrupt or inject himself into your life, that we'd be willing to hear that, not afraid of fear or afraid of emotion, but knowing that wherever God would lead us, even if it's into the vortex of it, that he will go with us and there is no freedom anywhere else than submitting to that. That's my prayer. Let's close. Father, we just commit again this morning to you. As we take and reflect during the time of offering, as we look forward to worship time tonight with communion, may you be in the center of all this. May all things be from and through and to you. May you get the glory in Jesus' name.